Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk and New Wire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson and and fortunately, this week, I think we need to lead with some sad news because just a couple hours before we started recording, we got this very traumatic update about Anthony Bourdain's suicide. Now, you've spoken to him. I spoke to him recently. What was your relationship to his work? I've loved his show for a while. Um, I just, I confess that I got an enormous kick out of uh, what he did, which was to be a journalist, a real journalist, going into a different location, an exotic one. He went to some amazing places that were dangerous and and really not that well known. Places like Libya and and the Congo, and and he, you know, he 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 would visit. He would find some cool people to interview about the the culture and the politics and the food, and he would use food as a way in uh, to the broader, yes, exactly. As you know, he was obviously a chef and he'd written, you know, kitchen confidential and he was well known. Uh, And he's been doing this show for a long time under various different names and iterations. But the version I came to was the one on CNN. I found out as you did that he's a huge cinema buff and he would use uh various filmmakers as inspiration like he would do the apocalypse now scene with the you know with the fan going overhead or or he would he would take on uh the look of certain cinematographers so my own experience recently with anthony bourdain was that i interviewed him for this story that you mentioned and uh that hong kong episode what i found to be really striking about it is that it felt kind of like the natural endpoint, so to speak, of what he's been building to. You know, the way the show is just so creative in its investigation of culture, the food is is definitely secondary, but I also think that what's kind of amazing about it is that it feels like it's reaching beyond the kind of, you know, boundaries of, uh, you know, more cost prohibitive food culture to address how people relate to their environments and, and, and allow food to be just one component of this bigger picture every day. And if you look at that episode, what's kind of amazing about it is that it ticks every box of what made Bourdain into this really interesting kind of uh, cultural journalist slash storyteller. You know, he's like talking to people about uh, you know, living uh, with very limited means or dealing with gentrification. He even goes to this uh, restaurant specifically for African refugees, uh, one of whom wanted to come to the U.S. but couldn't because of the travel ban. So there, there is this kind of implied political element to the show, but at the same time, it's also it's just very visually inventive and kind of like this poetic salute to what it's like to feel like you're in this this world that you know it just sort of operates at a very specific rhythm and the way they create that show is designed to to reflect that and I guess what 
what I, I'm, I'm sort of struck by is how difficult it is to create something like that that's so uh, innovative and individualistic and tied to somebody's personality on a grand scale. I mean, this was on CNN, you know, so. Yeah. Um, so. He was a great personality. He was sexy, by the way. I always found him very sexy. And um, the thing that struck me when I interviewed him was that he uh, actually was very demanding of himself. He was he was a taskmaster. He didn't uh, take any of this lightly. Uh, it looks easy. It looks like it's fun. But he wrote every episode. He would go into his room and, and he took notes and he knew what the episode was going to be. And he would write alone in his hotel room wherever he was. And I'm sure that the pace and demanding uh, the demanding uh, nature of the show actually took its toll on him um, more than we we may realize uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm just so sorry it was a great lo- I was a huge fan and it's a great loss I guess what I'm trying to say is that he was not um, he, he held himself to a very high standard and worked very hard to make the show as, as good as it is and what you said is true it's not it follows no formula so he reinvented it every time and that's very hard to do yeah, and and it leaves a kind of void too. I mean, if you look at Netflix, there are so many different cooking shows, and some of them are pretty interesting. And some of them, you could tell they they did them in in thirty seconds and and cranked them all out all at once. There's something kind of amazing about uh, being able to do something like this and uh, and appeal to so many different people at once. And it, it almost felt like he was just getting started on some level. And I I was happy to do this story recently with him, but there's a New Yorker profile from a couple of years ago that I was thinking about that really broke down how Bourdain got to this level of autonomy where he was pitching to the network. I think the line in the piece is something like he was saying that the the idea for the show is he travels around and does whatever the fuck I want. And that's really what the show is. It's kind of like, you never know what you're going to get. And, um, I don't know. I just it's just so frustrating too because uh, I, when I called him a few days ago, he sounded really exhausted. And um, you realize that when you see something that's of a certain level of quality and also requires a certain kind of you know investment physically and intellectually on a regular basis, it can take a toll on you you know, and um, whatever mental health issues were also going on behind the scene. I mean, it just, you know, maybe this was an important creative outlet, but it's just, it's just unnerving. Well, I'll miss it for one. I'll go back. I'm going to go back and catch up on, on the shows I missed and, and go back to some of my favorites. And I recommend that, that everyone else uh, celebrate the the great Anthony Bourdain. It's really a great loss. Anybody who likes to travel, there's now this incredible library of ways to explore the world through this show. Whenever I'm going somewhere, I check, I check to see if he's been where I'm going and he's been just about everywhere at some point. It's true. And there's like an authenticity to it too. It's like, you know, you're not going to come up with a list of like necessarily the finest restaurants in town, but you're going to have a a better understanding of, of how food exists in that kind of a place. 
Speaking of which, he did a great job on Little Tokyo. I mean, um, on on Koreatown in in L.A. and and in in the context of of the anniversary of the of the riots. And he, and he also he also did uh, one of the great you know bad. He, there's an element of Bourdain, which is about being the bad boy. You know, eating the food that no one else would eat. You know, uh, being a macho guy. Um, and Little Tokyo, I mean, the one that he did where he goes to Tokyo is one of the great ones as well. Um, there there's some there's some amazing and he and by the way he does go to the to the high end there's a wonderful one where he goes to india to the northern part of india where where uh he he goes goes into a a kind of um part of the country that many people haven't been to that was very uh british and colonial and he also um there's some amazing uh, explorations of places that you would never think to go places like Colombia and South America. A lot of, a lot of cool uh, there's ice fishing in Canada (laughs) and there's an, a semi auto, there's an autobiographical one where he goes and visits his brother on the Jersey shore and goes back into, into his more of his own autobiography. It's, it's a, you know, and how he came up in, in the Boston area and his drug problems. And he was always very open about that as well, which he, which he did conquer, um, years ago. I did like the, uh, speaking of, of, um, getting, uh, under the influence, there's an episode that I think sort of epitomizes that side of the travel element when he goes to Korea, because the whole thing is edited backwards and the premise is basically that they went out and drank too much and couldn't remember anything. So it's like this memento style thing. And uh, I mean, it made me want to go to Korea, but it was also it was just like super cool to see that kind of a thing. You know, just, you know, so. just at home in my living room, uh, I would tell you that whenever we have people over and there's some debate about what we're going to watch on television, the thing that everyone always agrees to watch, the consensus choice is always Anthony Bourdain. You know, yeah. no matter who you are, you like Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, it's it's uh, that kind of thing is just so frustrating when you hear this this kind of news because it's just like, you know, well, you're gonna need another option now. I mean, there's a great library. There's nobody like him. Yeah. Absolutely no. But I, yeah. I used to sort of fantasize. You know, uh, it, 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 that would be my fantasy job. You know, not that I was qualified for it, but it, 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 I couldn't imagine anything more fun than the job he had. But but again, if you do it on that level, it, it it's going to it's going to exact a price. It's you know? a lot. It's a lot. I mean, he was telling me last week how it's like he basically like lives on airplanes and he's a cinephile. So it's the impression I got was just like perpetually exhausted, kind of romantic journeyman who's like sort of trapped in between the constantly looking for new possibilities for the show and then retreating into the creative inspirations for it, you know, because he was such an active cinephile and watching so many movies all the time in between all this kind of stuff and trying to pull some of that into the show. And so Wong Kar Wai was the one that he used for, for the Hong Kong episode and he's used him more than once. Yeah. And in Buenos Aires too, for the, yeah, He's happy together. So, anyway, we right. have movies to talk about too. But but it, it, it did feel appropriate for us to kind of get into Bourdain here because it's just, just so much worth celebrating about his legacy. 
Um, so what are, what are the movies opening this week? I well, guess. we've got Hereditary finally, which, uh, of course, uh, debuted very well at Sundance and built up a buzz about how scary it is, which it is, and how well directed it is. You did a story uh, about Ari Oster and what he, he put into it. And, and I did a story about... Um, Oscar chances for Tony Collette, who's just amazing in it. And of course, it all comes down to whether the Academy is willing to overcome its various genre biases in order to give her. It'll probably happen. I think she's so amazing. She goes so far, so over the top in this that uh, uh, with utter, utter believability that uh, that yeah. I think she'll get there. Yeah, I don't know. Even if it's over the top, it's it, what, what's interesting about the movie to me is the way that it's not over of, the top over, yeah. let's say far you know? yeah i mean it, it goes to a cer- certain extremes and what what's what's interesting to me about it is i've talked to people who see it even if they're not horror buffs and they're sort of they're they're wrapped up in this story that's more about a mother who's who's going through this grieving process and then the screws keep turning and it becomes more supernatural and crazy and then you know, no spoilers, but some really wild, wild stuff happens in the last couple minutes of this movie. But it, <laughs> it also it sinks in on some level because you're like, wow, I really invested in this woman's conundrum and what she's going through. And, you know, she goes to a seance, but maybe it's just sort of like this desperate measure from a woman who's kind of losing it or whatever. And then all this crazy stuff happens and you feel like, wow, the, nobody really got out of that OK. And um, I don't know. I've just been Alex, thinking Alex about Wolf that a lot. is very good, and 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 yeah. uh, you know, it, it's it's not just uh, Tony Collette. It's it's it's, it's you know what it is. It's grounded in some kind of r- real family dynamic, except that you don't know, you know, exactly where it's going. It's it really is unpredictable um, in a way, and it, I, I think it really has a lot of the DNA and the bones of something like. Uh, Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. I mean, I really compare it to movies like that. Psychological thriller. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the the Rosemary's Baby comparison has been the most kind of obvious one that people have sort of honed in on. What's what's funny to me is the the way that Astor keeps talking about the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Not a horror movie, but the more that I think about it, you can really see there is there are some connections there between this kind of like highbrow horrifying set of circumstances in a very in a, in a very big open theatrical setting I mean that house in hereditary was built from scratch and the more that you're in it the more it goes beyond feeling like a house it becomes this kind of like du- dungeon of dread you know and uh, man for a first time feature well you, you, you he did a lot of shorts did a so lot of shorts. the people at a24 were were co- pretty pretty confident that he could he couldn't deliver this stuff I'm sorry there's somebody trying to reach me very determinedly um, anyway uh, the 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 whole thing is is um, that's what's great about it it it, it feels uh, artful and uh, is worth watching just on a stylistic level but it's really scary. It's, it's, it's funny because um, when I went to go see it at Sundance, I, I got this sense that there, there was kind of like almost like an inevitability that it was going to be an impressive piece of horror. It was sort of being presented as this year's The Witch or something kind of like somewhat upscale or whatever. But it's still, yeah, smart horror, smart yeah, horror. horror. But it, but it still surprised me in a way because of the way that it, it lingered. I mean, I like The Witch quite a bit, but I, I even thought I thought The Witch was less 
of a hard didn't have the same layers as this one does because this one is playing around well first of all the reason it's so scary is that you have several different layers of reality first of all she's an unreliable narrator you don't know her mental state and she has every reason she's grieving she has every reason to be in a very heightened state and then you don't know the backstory on her mother whatever was going on with her and then you don't know what level of dreamscape is going on or even what the uh, potential for magic and witchcraft are and so it leaves you with a very unsettling feeling yeah and I also think there's something really interesting about filmmakers who don't want to be pigeonholed even when they're really good at doing the thing they're being pigeonholed as like this director is saying he's not a horror filmmaker but he's already got he's already in production on his next movie and it's a horror movie I mean the, the story that I wrote was basically about how he had like a bunch of different screenplays and this was because it was genre seemed like it was the most commercial possibility and I actually think in some ways, there's value in embracing that skill. I mean, you know, Polanski's not a horror director, but he's worked in lots of interesting genres, and 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 Rosemary's Baby is one of his great movies. And I, and I think this guy could probably stand to benefit from you know staying in that space and and sort of expanding his skills in that regard rather than doing some big jump into another area. I mean, the the horror genre is devoid of really great filmmakers and as a result often seems like it's about you know silly jump scares and stuff like that so you know well one of the good things about the horror genre is that as long as it's uh, low budget the people who fund it allow a certain amount of originality to occur and uh, this banking on Aster in the case of A24 was certainly a smart move and of course they're going to play all their cards yeah right? and it looks like it's going to make a lot it's going to be huge yeah it's going to be move, huge and, and I mean it's funny because it's like it's an easy commercial sell right now at the beginning of the summer and uh, that's not something you could have said about say First Reformed or something like that we've talked about that before how that was sort of this surprise hit Hereditary it's like it could have just been okay and maybe it would have worked. But I feel like what's what's in, what's going to be notable here is um, that it, it will satisfy people who want a horror movie, but it also satisfies people who want something different. Like The Witch got a C cinema score because horror fans were like, that wasn't really a horror movie or whatever. Certain kinds of horror fans said that. This one, they, they will it delivers the goods. So it, it can have that profile while also playing in a different kind of way. But in terms of the awards prospects, I mean, how far do you think a movie like this could go? Is this is this a screenplay contender? Is it, could it be a best picture contender? If it, no. It I mean, if you look at Get Out, um, you see that Get Out had had a higher uh, profile and was more elevated because of its subject matter, because of its novelty, um, and because uh, it was it was really uh, taken seriously in a certain way beyond uh, the horror genre. And I don't think that's going to happen here, but the, there's certainly plenty of precedents, you know, Ellen Burstyn, uh, uh, Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs, Ellen Burstyn for um, uh, The Exorcist and also Requiem for a Dream, which I think this performance actually is in that league. Um, so I think the actors will totally appreciate what Tony Collette has done. I mean, Frederick March, 
um, for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, there, there's plenty of uh, precedence for uh, actors in horror movies. You know, well, someone like Kathy Bates or 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 uh, Jodie Foster. You know, there there are plenty of those. Yeah, I mean, Colette herself being nominated for the Sixth Sense. Yeah. So. So it sort of brings her back to, to that terrain. It's her only nomination, which is sort of surprising, actually. I'm, I'm sort of curious about what, you, what you're saying in respect to uh, Hereditary not necessarily, you know, playing as something more than horror the way that Get Out did. Because, it, I mean, obviously Get Out was uh, could have had a profile as an important movie uh, that, that was speaking to, you know, the black experience in a way that we'd never seen before that could also be, you know, a genre film at the same time. But Hereditary is speaking to real human emotions and it's, and it's got an older female protagonist we don't see very often sort of as a centerpiece in a movie like this. I mean, it does feel like there is a certain authenticity here that could be attached to, to the film. I mean, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a best picture contender, but I think that a 24 is very wily and very savvy about how to play the, these games. They know that the critics are going to put it on the 10 best lists at the end of the year that it, you know, Tony Collette will probably get some important nominations from places like the golden globes and SAG, you know, the Gotham's, the indie spirits, and they could be pushing for screenplay or visual effects or something like that. But I don't think it'll go farther than that. Maybe Ari Aster gets a lot of uh, first-time filmmaker kind of kudos. Yeah, you know, yeah like, that's sort of a no-brainer right there. I mean, it's like, like Jordan Peele did and and Kugler did back back what? with Fruitvale Station. You know, well, that kind and, of thing. And and Peele won the one Oscar that Get Out got was for screenplay. So correct. There correct. is maybe some some sort of potential. Some hope there. there. And I then mean, the I other kind of... movie that's coming that might do really well also on a whole other level. Uh, I think we touched on it last week. Is is the is the Morgan Neville movie? Uh, Won't you be my neighbor? Which I think is going to do. It's in like twenty nine uh, situations. I think it's going to do really well. Yeah, talk about a double bill right there. Either you want to, <laughs> you know, feel great about the world and watch or Mr. Cry. Rogers, or and then get traumatized, or get traumatized and feel better about the world watching Mr. Rogers. I did a Q&A I'm not for sure this. Mr. Uh, Rogers makes you feel better about the world. I well, think it I, makes you feel worse in a funny I, way I don't because know, it's I'm a not, sign of what's missing. You know, I, some if you start crying when Lyndon Johnson signs PBS into existence, there's something wrong with the world. You the know, the movie really does make people think about the div- divisiveness of our current political landscape. But I did a Q and A with about the uh, with uh, Morgan Neville the other night, and what I thought was interesting. This came up, and what I thought was interesting about it is that I think what pe- what is life affirming about the movie in terms of the way it plays to people is the fact that it that it plays to so many different kinds of perspectives and you forget that Mr. Rogers was this kind of ultimate equalizer my wife said she realized after she saw it that her ethics were 25% Mr. Rogers it was a really interesting idea a lot like, of children were raised by him yeah there's like multiple generations and people who have grown up and and chosen to see the world in different ways and adhere to different belief systems and it's still informed by this person and I think the discovery of that through watching the movie is what makes people feel kind of good and also like well if this person isn't around anymore you know what is wrong with our society and maybe there's something that needs to be discussed and fixed in that regard but the movie doesn't go political right it doesn't even when it talks about 
you know, Fred Rogers' widow saying something like, you know, he wouldn't have necessarily taken kindly to the nature of our discourse today or something to that effect. You don't get like a Trump clip in there or something like that. It, it holds back from doing that in an interesting kind of way. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the commercial prospects here, because we've talked before about RBG, which is, is doing so well at the box Past office. Past $8 million, which insane. is really kind of mind-boggling. It's like it's the highest-grossing movie Magnolia has ever released. She, she's like the, unprepossessing uh, documentary. The, the you movie know? star of the summer is a justice yeah. of the Supreme Court. But but that that's sort of the root of this, right? You have this still-living kind of icon. Hero. And These they, are both and they, heroes. But and, and for her, they've they've really leaned into the to the kind of youth appeal of it. Like there are memes with her and all this kind of stuff. With Mr. Rogers, it's interesting. I mean, there there is a movie going audience that is actually too young to have grown up with Mr. Rogers. So there's that you have to consider. And also, is the idea of the Mr. Rogers documentary actually as commercially appealing as the idea of a documentary with somebody who is still welding influence to this day. I so think they're I, different. They're, and they're, yeah. they're the same in one sense, which is that you have two heroes. You have real life heroes, models of, of how we can be the good side of human nature at a time when the bad side is so apparent and it seems so dark and so grim. Um, so, but the thing that I experienced is the thing that will sell uh, Morgan Neville, and that is, is uh, this movie is sitting in a theater with a lot of people who are moved and crying, and that's a shared communal experience. I wouldn't want to see um, "Won't You Be My Neighbor" alone on a TV screen. I would want to see it in a theater with a lot of other people who are also upset by it, and. And it's and, and that's really what it, it, it hits the zeitgeist. They both hit the zeitgeist in a particular way, having to do with the Trump era that we're living through right now. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like which one makes you feel something worse more. or better. Or, yeah, or just feel something. Pure. I mean, the fact that it actually has that kind of effect. I mean, look, Hereditary leaves you rattled. These movies leave you thinking about the world. There's something about that where it's like you can you can see a movie for its craftsmanship and, and like check all these boxes. It's like, yeah, it did this or that or the other thing. You know, it goes back to the Bourdain conversation. It's like you can do a food show that's like pretty good or you can like go the extra mile and really have an impact. And I think what you're saying here is like these movies have have an impact that kind of lingers. It gets you talking. And that's it's it's just really difficult to, to replicate that unless you have something authentic to offer. Um, I also think with focused features behind this movie, they can really push out Won't You Be My Neighbor in, in a big kind of a way. And um, it's funny, I was talking to some of the executives there after this, this Q&A the other night, and we were joking about how the, their summer is bookended with this, you know, the first, the, their first movie of the summer is, is this really unifying kind of upbeat thing. And then they're closing out with Spike Lee's Black Klansman which uh, is, is, you know, going to really get people riled up and talking and, and have, uh, I, you know, all kinds of hot debates about race in this country. It's being released on the anniversary of Charlottesville. So it's it's quite an extreme, but it, but it is kind of exciting to have movies that are getting out there in a big way that will really shake up the conversation. So, you know, I think it's, it's good for that company um, to be sitting at the center of that. And, Absolutely. Um, They're on their game right now. 
even and if it, the uh, even if the Pope movie did not uh, connect, um, although yeah. it's doing well uh, mostly with uh, Spanish speaking audiences. So that I mean, it's fun. like it's almost like the Pope. Maybe he needs a couple more years or something. I don't know. He's just not quite as exciting. No, it's just that he's lecturing. You know, I mean, I think Vin Vendors, I think there are certain expectations for for movies from him. I mean, he's one of the great documentary filmmakers. He's been nominated three times, which is unusual. Um, But he's really, uh, I think he did as good a job as you could with this. But finally, you do have the Pope lecturing at you in Spanish. And if you're Catholic (laughs) and if you speak Spanish, you're going to be more receptive, I think, finally than anyone else yeah i guess i I do want to see that thing but it just doesn't there there is something that's just also less exciting to me yeah Yeah, that's 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 what it is yeah it's a difference so uh in any case next week i guess we'll have a chance to dig into incredibles 2 the pixar movie coming out as this did we ever talk about oceans 8 i haven't seen oceans 8 (laughs) it has eluded me it was, you it's one have of those skipped things. it. It is not yeah. of interest to you. A I, sequel I, to an Oceans movie is not in Eric Cohn's wheelhouse. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I, I like those movies for what they are. I I think it was sort of a combination of some early reactions that threw me off and other kinds of priorities. I, I do plan to see it. So I will try to see it for an next It's really fun. We can get it's really it. fun. Yeah. I mean, it's not, It's. not. I'm not making any claims for it as... As great art, but I love I love Kate Blanchett and and Sandra Bullock and there's a great group of of women um, Sarah Paulson, Mindy Kaling and others. You know it's really it's really quite fun um, and I kind of well feel made. like I've seen it I've seen it already. You know it's like I heard a few reactions. I was like yeah I kind of know what this movie is. But yeah, I, but I will do. I will do that. <laughs> it is that I, is a formula that is a formula movie. And by the way, last night I went to the AFI. Uh, Life Achievement Awards with George Clooney, which will be aired on TNT on June 21, and um, that was fun. That, did he say anything oceans. about? I was going to say, did he did he acknowledge the uh, the franchise that has moved on without him or? He was really, um, it was an interesting evening because on the one hand, it was carefully crafted to lean into the, you know, the humanitarian George Clooney, you know, the, the, the great man, you know, who, who's a good friend and has the right values. And I, I actually got a kick out of people like uh, his father, Nick Clooney, who, who obviously is, is very much a part of who George is. And, Journalist. And, not that it's not just that it's it's the values that he is that he definitely uh espouses and amal was there you know looking ravishing as usual and going up and giving a nice speech about how much she loves her husband and her little twin kids and all that stuff i guess what i would say is there was less i mean jimmy kimmel did his usual rap you know criticizing you know giving going after some of the bad movies that George Clooney has directed like Monuments Men and, and Leatherheads and so on. But yeah. uh, for the most part, it was pretty hagiographic. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is sort of as like these a things wa- tend to be. Yeah. I was going to say he's sort of like a walking hagiography at this point. You know? <laughs> and he's right. like, he gets a lot of mileage out of making fun of, of wearing a bat suit too. I, I feel like I've heard that joke so many times. Absolutely. Like, no, but he actually, what, what he did talk about with me was, was uh, catch 22, which, which is his, you know, he's jumping into long form uh, premium television. So he's got a Hulu series. It uh, was only a matter of time. Yep. <laughs> All All right, right. we'll talk next week. week. Incredibles 2. See you then. Bye bye.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.